0: Everybody, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Exodus, looking at chapters 7 through 9. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and open it there. If you don't have one, you should be able to find a hardback black one on the seat somewhere around you. You can find this passage on page 49. Now, believe it or not, we are not the first people to read the book of Exodus, In the nearly 4,000 years that have elapsed since this book was written, since its events took place, God has been using the story of the Exodus to teach generation after generation what he is like. And Exodus has been read by people that look like us and people that look differently than we do. And one group of people that found incredible hope from the story of the Exodus were African slaves in the American South. These slaves found great hope in the story of God's delivering a people from wicked slavery in Egypt. And they knew that this same slave-saving, sin-stopping God could deliver them from a wicked slavery in America. And so this hope of the Exodus filled their sermons and their stories and their songs and their prayers. So as the slaves trudged through the fields... They were constantly singing songs about Moses and singing songs about the God who delivers his people. They knew that the slave-saving, sin-stopping God revealed in Exodus is a God who hates injustice and is a God who will reign over all of the earth with justice. Today, we have a growing awareness, often, of injustice around us, and it hurts us to see, it pains us to think about, but today I want to show you hope from the book of Exodus that our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. That's the main idea I want to drive home to you today. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. Justice will be done Sinners will be punished, and the oppressed will be lifted up. You can count on it. So today, as we turn to Exodus 7 through 9, we're going to see tensions start to rise in the story of Pharaoh and the people of God. Moses continually presents God's demands to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh continually refuses to submit to God's demands. But this God, who is the perfect judge of all the earth, cannot tolerate any injustice. He will not allow Pharaoh's rebellion to go unpunished. And so today, today, we're going to look at the first six of these ten plagues that God sent to Egypt in response to Pharaoh's refusal to let his people go. And what I want to do is look at the first of those plagues in detail, showing four truths about God, who is the perfect judge of all the earth, And as we discover each of those truths, we're going to quickly look at the other five of the first six plagues and see how those truths unfold in those plagues as well. So we're going to read the story of that first plague, the true story about God's work through Moses. Then we're going to pray and then jump in. So starting out in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that as we hear this stunning, true story about your power and your perfect judgment, I pray that we would be amazed at who you are, that you are the God who can turn the mighty Nile River into death and blood. God, would we be amazed by your power? And would you show your power at work among us today? Would you, in the same power, with the same power that turned the Nile River into blood, would you change hearts today? Would you soften hard hearts? Would you show us to hate our sin and to love your holiness? Would you show us that our lives are not worth holding on to? Would you help us to let go of everything so that the good news of your perfect power and perfect judgment would go to spread to the ends of the earth. God, would you give us humble ears to hear your word today. It's for your name we pray. Amen. The main idea is that our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. And we'll see this main, un- we'll see this main idea unfold by looking at four truths about our God's perfect justice. Number one, God is a holy judge. Number two, God is a powerful judge. Number three, God is a complete judge. And number four, God is a universal judge. So first, God is a holy judge. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. Specifically, he is perfect in holiness. God's judgment is not spiteful revenge It is a perfectly pure response to evil. Look how the story of the first plague begins. Chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So, this event is made necessary for two reasons. Because Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And that's wrong, first of all, because he's wrongly enslaving a group of people, he's grossly mistreating them. This is wrong, this is deplorable. But that's not even the worst part. Because even worse than wronging other people, Pharaoh has wronged God. As we heard last week, God made a specific demand of Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh refused to obey. He has disobeyed God and he must be punished. And why has he disobeyed God? Look at verse 14. It's because his heart is hardened. Now throughout the next few chapters in Exodus, we'll see that, that uh, phrase come up multiple times where either Pharaoh's heart is described as hard or Pharaoh is described as hardening his own heart and even the Lord is described as hardening Pharaoh's heart. To have a hard heart is to be stubborn and unyielding, set in your ways, no matter what God says. So to say that Pharaoh's heart is hard is to say that he stands firmly opposed to God no matter what happens. Pharaoh hardens his heart by hearing the words and hearing the commands of God with his ears, but refusing to hear them with his heart, refusing to obey. And when the text says that God himself hardens Pharaoh's heart, it shows us that this God is in control of all things, including Pharaoh's heart. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is in control of everything, including Pharaoh's hard heart. But that doesn't mean that Pharaoh is off the hook, as if he only disobeyed God under coercion. No, no. God merely allowed Pharaoh to continue going down the sinful path that he had chosen, God gave Pharaoh up to his own sinful rebellion. It's easy sometimes to make excuses for your sin, like, ah, well, you know, this isn't harming anyone. Friends, that is a lie. Your sin always harms someone, namely yourself. When you continue in sin, you are hardening your heart against its wickedness. You are constantly preaching to yourself the lie that sin is fine and that God's word is wrong. And the longer you preach that to yourself, the harder your heart becomes. The longer that you believe that you know better than God and that you can pick and choose parts of his word to obey, the harder your heart is becoming. Friends, don't play with sin. It is not a kitten, it is a lion, and it will destroy you. And this points out to us the fact that we are so broken in our sin that we have no hope unless the holy God, who is the holy judge of all the earth, saves us and changes us and softens our hearts. So our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. Specifically, he is perfect in holiness. His judgment is a perfect response to the impurities of the world and the hardness of our hearts when we judge others we are controlled by our own feelings and our pride we hold grudges we are vindictive but god on the other hand is only controlled by his own perfect holy law and never by sinful selfish feelings now the judgment of god is very good news it means that all people All wrongdoers will be judged. One day, they will be held accountable for their actions and they will be destroyed. We all want that kind of justice, don't we? We all need that kind of justice. We know that the world is not right when wrongdoers walk free. But the judgment of God isn't just coming for other people. It's coming for us. Punishment is coming for our sin. It doesn't matter if you're better than other people because the holy God does not grade on a curve. He will judge you based on how you stack up to his holiness, not the holiness of your neighbor. Our only hope for escape from this holy judgment is to hide in the perfect holiness of Christ. Jesus Christ lived the perfect holy life that we could not live. And then he died a sinful, shameful death on a cross, taking on the worst of God's holy judgment for sin. And then Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered death itself. When Jesus died, he was being punished for sin, but he didn't have any sin to be punished for. So, what's going on there? Is this a mistake in the holy judgment of God? No, this is not a mistake. This is the plan of our holy God. Christ took on the punishment for our sin so that if anyone looks to him, looks to the risen Lord Jesus with faith, he will save you from your sin. He will forgive you so that you are not held to the right punishment for your sin. And he will send the Holy Spirit to help you so that you are not controlled by the present power of sin. The holy God forgives not by sweeping your sin under the rug of the universe and ignoring it, but by laying it on his Son who suffered in our place, took that holy judgment onto himself. So has God dealt with your sin in this way? Have you repented of your unholiness and believed in the Holy Savior, Jesus Christ? He's inviting you today to do that. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. He is a holy judge, and number two, he is a powerful judge. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. Specifically, he is perfect in power. God is not limited. There is no end to his ability. There is no limit to his expertise. There is no weakness that could mar his strength. He does not merely have good intentions to bring about justice. He has the perfect power needed to always perfectly accomplish justice. So look how the story continues. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die And the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. Do you see what happened there? God said, this is going to happen. And then in that last verse, it happened. God is a powerful judge with perfect power to accomplish always his perfect holy justice. Now, do you see how this section starts in verse 17? By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Friends, the word Lord means king. It means ruler. It means sovereign. God is saying, you want to know who's in charge, Pharaoh? I'm going to turn all of the water into blood. I'm going to completely decimate everything that you have so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in charge and that you are not. And then he does it. He's not just talk. He's got game. And notice how he does it. He doesn't just turn a little bit of water into blood like a magic trick, like, ooh, spooky. Uh, No, no, no. No, this judgment is comprehensive. Look again at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Every drop of water in the land of Egypt was infected. God's judgment is comprehensive and it is inescapable. And he goes on to do more astounding signs. Next, he fills the land with frogs. Now, that might not sound like such a big deal, but imagine if everything you have Everywhere you step, and perhaps most concerning, everything that you try to eat is covered with frogs and the things that frogs leave behind. That's absolutely disgusting. And then after the frogs come gnats and flies who bite every man and animal. And then all of the livestock of the Egyptians died. So they have no meat, they have no work animals, they have no transportation animals. And then... The Egyptians are covered in boils. So they're itching and hurting all over and they're moaning all night and all day. You can't sleep because you're covered in boils and it hurts to lay down. You can't work because you're covered in boils and it hurts to stand up. And God does all of this, according to Exodus 8.10, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. God is unparalleled in power. There is no one like the Lord, so stop rebelling against him. Turn to him and trust. This God who is perfect in power is worthy of that. He is worthy of your trust. He will never let you down because he's perfect in power and he's always true to his word. Christian, God will never lead you astray Or leave you abandoned. The all-powerful God is your guard. What do you have to worry about? You have no need that he is not powerful enough to meet. And if you're not a Christian, know that God has perfect power and he will catch up to you. Your sin is known by his perfect knowledge and it will be destroyed by his perfect power. But he's inviting you to come to faith in him and to be saved. Not by figuring it out and cleaning yourself up, but by running to the Lord Jesus. God is a powerful judge. He has the power necessary to destroy all sin and to guard his people. Number three, God is a complete judge. He's a holy judge, he's a powerful judge, and he is a complete judge. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. Specifically, he is perfect in the extent of his justice. He is complete in his justice. He leaves no injustice partially punished or unpunished. Every sin will be perfectly punished. Look at Exodus seven twenty-one through 25. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Can you imagine the scene? You can't go outside without smelling the thick, pungent, foul stench of blood everywhere. And because the Nile River has turned into blood, the fish don't have water to breathe, and so they're dying too, and they're washing up on the coast and rotting away. Every time the Israelites walk outside, they see death as the red, bloody water is reflected everywhere. They smell death. Probably with the moaning and the grunting from digging around the Nile, they're even hearing sounds of death. The first plague is filling all five of their senses with death. And in this sense, it's just a foretaste of what's coming. All of these plagues are building and growing in severity until they reach the final plague, the death of the firstborn child in every Egyptian household. Death is coming for the Egyptians. It is looming large on the horizon, and this plague is just a foretaste, a warning. So here in the plagues, we do not see God's perfect justice completely realized. We have a preview of God's complete justice, which is certainly coming. And usually in the Old Testament, promises and predictions and warnings like this have two fulfillments. They have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So here, the watery death in the Nile River was a warning. And it has a near fulfillment in the parting of the Red Sea, where Pharaoh and his army will be destroyed. So here in Exodus 7, the waters are filled with death. A few chapters later, in Exodus 14, the waters of the Red Sea will be filled with death yet again. But this warning also has a far fulfillment. It isn't just a warning that Pharaoh would be punished for his rebellion against the Lord, but that all people will be punished for their rebellion against the Lord God of Israel. The plagues fill the Egyptians' senses with death to remind them that eternal death is coming for all who are outside of the family of God. All people are sinful and will be held accountable for their sin. Injustice is not just a problem out there, it's a problem in here as well, in each of us. We've all sinned against our great God, and we all deserve to be punished. Completely punished. A slap on the hand will not do. Death is the only option. And you might think that God's overreacting here in Exodus, nearly decimating an entire nation because of how the Israelites were treated. But what you need to realize is that Pharaoh is not just committing injustice against the Israelites. He's committing crimes against the Lord God Almighty who made the heavens and the earth. So think about it this way. If I walked outside and I punched Jonathan Orr in the face, I would be in trouble, right? That was sinful. That was unjust. I wronged him and I need to be punished. But imagine if I went outside and I walked a little bit further up to the White House and I punched President Biden in the face. I would be in trouble. A a little bit more trouble than punching Jonathan because I didn't just punch an equal. I punched the president. And that is a much greater crime because he holds an extremely important office. When Pharaoh sinned, he was sinning against the Lord. And sin against the Lord requires an infinite punishment because he is infinitely great. All evil must be punished. But when we commit evil against an infinitely holy God, we have earned an infinite punishment. And by the way, every time we wrong another person, or disobey the word of God, or say that we know better than God's word, we are always committing evil against this holy God, because all people are made in his image. All our sins are against this holy God, so all our sins are worthy of death. Death is the only option. And notice that Pharaoh's magicians do some pretty impressive signs themselves. They even replicate some of the plagues. We don't know how they did it, the, the text says that it's by their secret arts. But we know that they did do it. There are times in this life when it seems like the powers of evil and the powers of sin and injustice are pretty strong, right? It's, sometimes it seems like good and evil are neck and neck equally matched, that God and Satan are in a cosmic arm wrestling battle and we're not really sure who's going to win. You might feel completely worn down by the weight of your suffering and the evil that has been committed against you, you might feel completely at a loss because of the forces allied against you, because of the things that people have done to you. But God's victory is never uncertain. He always accomplishes his purposes, even when it looks like evil is winning. God will always accomplish his purposes and he will always save his people. Because even though Pharaoh's magicians do some pretty impressive signs, they cannot deliver themselves. They cannot save Egypt. They only make the problem worse. They're just making more bloody water. On the other hand, God is able to spare his people. So, look, for instance, at the plague of the flies in Exodus 8. Verses 21 and 22. So God says to Pharaoh, let my people go, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, So that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. God gives the flies a boundary. They fill the Egyptians' homes, but they don't even get to the Israelites' neighborhood. Now, that's absolutely astounding. You can't train a fly. You can't reason with a fly. But God has them under his complete control. And the same thing happened in the other plagues. When all of Egypt's livestock died, the livestock of Israel stands strong. So while God can spare and deliver his people, the Egyptian magicians only make the problem worse. They turn more water into blood. They summon more flies. And that's always what sin does. That's always what the ways of the world do. They cannot save us. They just make the problem worse. If you have been wronged, know that your holy God guards you. And he will protect you. On the other hand, if you think that rebelling against God will make your life better, you are hardening your heart. If you think that accepting what God condemns will make the world better, you are hardening your heart. If you think that fame, success, and money, and power will make you happy, you are hardening your heart. If you think that you can get to heaven by being good enough, you are hardening your heart. The magicians couldn't save Pharaoh, and we can't save ourselves. Our sins are crimes against an infinite God and they are worthy of an infinite death. Death is the only option and that's why the Lord Jesus died. He died in our place so that if you trust in him, you can be forgiven. If you have trusted in him in the past, he will never remove his forgiveness from you. He took the plague of death off of his people and put it on himself. He died in your place, and then because he had no sin that death could hold against him, he rose victoriously. He drank an infinite death. He swallowed it, and then he got back up. He conquered the death that haunted Egypt, and he conquered the death that hangs over all of our heads until the last day. If you trust in Christ, you will never die. Yes, this life will end unless the Lord comes back, but you will be raised up to worship him and to rule over the earth forever. The bloody Nile River declares that you will die for your sins. The bloody cross of Christ declares that Christ already has died for your sins. So run to the risen Christ today and find life. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. He is a holy judge. He is a powerful judge. He is a complete judge. And number four, he is a universal judge. He is the perfect judge of all the earth. He is not merely the judge of Israel or the judge of Egypt. He is the judge of all nations. The plagues of Egypt are specifically designed to send a message to the Egyptians. This God is not merely a tribal deity of Israel. He is the God of Egypt, and he is the God of all nations, and he is the God of all the earth. Look a few books later in the Bible at Numbers 33, verse 4. This is Moses' theological explanation for the plagues of Egypt. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were burying every firstborn male the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had executed judgment against their gods. Against their gods. Now what does that mean? We've been talking about how the plagues are God's perfect judgment against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians, but in Numbers 33, Moses is saying that the plagues our judgment not just against the Egyptians but against the Egyptians gods. You see, these are not a random collection of calamities. These are direct assaults on the power and authority of the so-called gods of Egypt. So by sending these plagues specifically, God is showing that the gods of the Egyptians are no gods at all. The gods of the Egyptians cannot save Pharaoh because only the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who made the heavens and the earth, is real. And only that God has authority and only that God has all power. Only the true God can judge and only the true God can save. And the Lord is proving that the gods of Egypt cannot do either. So the river turning to blood is a direct assault on Hapi, the god of the Nile. He could not sustain the Egyptian's life when his river flowed with blood. Only the true God can judge and only the true God can save. The second, third, and fourth plagues, the frogs, the gnats, and the flies, are judgments on Heket, an Egyptian goddess with a frog's head, and Kefir, a flying insect god. These so-called gods are so small that they are at the beck and call of the God of Israel, who alone reigns supreme. Only the true God can judge, and only the true God can save. The fifth plague, the death of the livestock, is a judgment on the god Hathor, the guardian of Pharaoh, who is a cow. By killing all of the livestock, the real God is showing Pharaoh that his fake God guardian will be destroyed. There is no hope, there is no refuge from God's judgment apart from God himself. Only the true God can judge, and only the true God can save. The sixth plague, the boils, is a judgment of Sekhmet, an Egyptian goddess of healing. The goddess of healing has met her match, and she was no longer any use. Only the true God can judge, and only the true God can save. And I want to be clear, this is not saying that the Old Testament's arguing that these gods are real, or that there's some sort of cosmic battle between gods. No, uh, it's actually doing the opposite. By referencing each of these gods' domain... Exodus is showing that there is absolutely no king, there is no Pharaoh, there is no so-called God that can even begin to compare to the one true God, the one true king, the judge of Pharaoh, the savior of his people, the Lord, the God of Israel, the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega. The God of the Bible is not another tribal deity. He is the perfect God of all the earth. And this means three things. First, no one is outside of his reign. If you have been harmed, or maligned, or betrayed, or abused, know that God hears your cries, just like he heard the cries of the Israelites, and justice will be done. God will not ever fail to fulfill his justice. Second, none of you None of us are outside of his reign he is your king whether you submit to him or not he does hold authority over your life he will come to judge only the true god can judge and only the true god can save so stop running to the false gods of sex or money or power, run to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you want to learn more about what it means to trust in Christ and to thus be saved from the death judgment of God, please come and talk to us before you leave today. We'll have several prayer counselors in the back of the room who can pray with you and talk more with you about that. Or you can talk to the person who brought you. During the last song, please, we invite you to come back and pray with us. Third, if the Lord is the God of all nations, we must give our entire lives to making his name known among the nations. Only the true God can judge, and only the true God can save. And today, there are over 3,000 distinct people groups, groups of people marked by their ethnicity, language, culture, or tribe, who have never heard and have no way of hearing the good news that our God reigns, that he is coming to judge, and that he has sent his son to die and rise again to save us from our sins. We prayed for one of them earlier. I want to tell you about another one of them the Rajput Garwali of India. There are over half a million people living among the Rajput Garwali and none of them have ever heard the name of Jesus. There are no Christians among them or near them. There are no churches that they can drive to. There are no churches anywhere Worshipping in their language. They have absolutely no way of knowing that God is the judge of all the earth and that there is only salvation in his crucified, risen son. They have nothing to look forward to for all of eternity except for the death that was foreshadowed in the plagues. The Rajput Garwali speak a language called Garwali. Throughout all of history, no one has ever praised Christ in that language. But God, the God of Israel, is worthy of praise in Garwali. Revelation 5.9 says that Christ purchased people for God by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ has purchased people from the Rajput Garwali by his blood. And if the Rajput Garwali do not hear the good news of Christ's resurrection, he will not receive the rewards of his suffering but we know that he will. So we've got to do something about it. God's glory demands that we do everything in our power to bring this good news to the ends of the earth so that every tribe, tongue, and nation, we hear the good news that our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth and that he has made a way for us to be saved by trusting in his Son. Consider how Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15 puts it. For... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from the fiery death judgment of God. But there's a problem. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news the Rajput Garwali, and over 3 billion people around the world who have no access to the good news of Christ can be saved if they call upon the Lord. But they can only call upon the Lord if they believe. And they can only believe if they hear the good news. And they can only hear the good news if a Christian preaches it to them. And those Christians can only preach it to them if they are sent by other Christians. Every Christian has a role to play. Some go and share this good news so that the unreached can hear, believe, call upon the Lord, and be saved. Others send those Christians faithfully, radically, sacrificially, dangerously, supporting them by prayer, encouragement, and support. Some go, some send. Everyone has a part to play. This is not varsity and junior varsity. This is every Christian radically laying down their lives, all of their dreams and all of their preferences so that the nations would hear the good news that Christ is king. Global missions is the mission of the church. It is not one potential ministry for you to get involved in. It is the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations. Christ is worthy of your entire life. So give it away to making this news known, to go or to send. You can be a part of sending missionaries. When you give to our church, for instance, a portion of that gift is set aside to support missionaries around the globe, including one couple whose names are Logan and Emily. And they're going to be going to Southeast Asia in a few months, working with a team among the unreached. They're going to be laboring among a group of people like the Rajput Garwali, who have never heard the good news that Christ is risen. and We get to be a part of that. We're going to be keeping you updated on your work because you're their senders. So you need to be praying for them. For now, they're having visa issues. So pray that their visas would be granted so that they can join their team's work. Some of you are called to lay down your lives to go as a missionary. We live in a very transient city. Most of you will move away from this city in the next few years. You're going to move away, if that's the case. Why not move overseas? You could leverage your career strategically for the spread of Christ's name in every tribe, tongue, and nation. Many of the unreached people groups that remain are closed off to missionaries and religious workers. You cannot go and openly say, I'm a missionary and I'm here to change this people group. You can't do that, but these groups are clamoring for lawyers and healthcare workers and engineers and teachers and communications professionals and international experts and childcare workers and more. Do you know how I got that list of professions? I looked through the membership of Pillar DC, and I wrote down some of your jobs. Do you know what that means? That means you have an opportunity to go to these people groups and to share the hope of Christ with them. You can bring glory to the God of Israel. You might be thinking that you're not smart enough or gifted enough to serve among the unreached. Well, of course you're not. Do you think Moses was powerful enough to turn the Nile River into blood? Absolutely not. God did the work. He is the judge. He is the rescuer. And if you live for his glory, he will equip you. Right. We will train you. We will send you. We will support you every step of the way. In fact, this fall, we're going to be starting a cross-cultural ministry cohort. Woo! That's what I'm talking about, Kendall. Kendall's in it. You, you can be in it too. Uh, we're we're going to be gathering once a month to talk about God's heart for the nations, how to reach them, and we're even going to be working to meet non-Christians from other nations so that we can get some cross-cultural ministry experience and see what that's like. So if you're even remotely interested in discerning a call to global missions, that's a great place to start. Come and talk to me or Jared before you leave today. Our slave-saving, sin-stopping God is the perfect judge of all the earth. He is worthy of your entire life. Sin is not worth it, friends. It promises joy that it can never deliver, and it's only leading you to a bloody Nile River. He's worthy of your entire life, so lay it down. Lay down all of your sin and your self righteousness and your preferences. And your dreams come to him today, trusting in Christ for salvation, because he really is alive, and he really is the perfect judge of all the earth. And lay down your life for the spread of his glory among the nations. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you so much that you